Cork are in serious trouble. In the Munster Championship, they're going to get beaten. They're going to get beaten early. And when the Cork crowd turn against them, they turn so harsh. The Football Pod is available every Tuesday exclusively on the OTB Sports app. Now, you're welcome, Max. So you may have seen over the past week or so, debate has continued around Leah Thomas. Uh, Leah Thomas is 22 years of age. She is a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, She swam for the university's men's team for three seasons before starting hormone replacement therapy. That was in 2019. And she has uh, made history on Thursday just gone. So Leah Thomas now being the first transgender athlete to win an NCAA swimming championship, the 500 metres uh, freestyle to discuss the uh, wider issue of transgender athletes. We're joined by Dr. Ross Tucker. Great to have you with us as always, Ross. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, always happy to give it to you guys. Thank you. So just uh, more so to let the listeners know, the uh, reaction has been very emotive and widespread worldwide media attention. Hence, I suppose, the reason we're checking in with you. Uh, there were uh, a small protest, I suppose, at the Georgia Tech swimming facility from the Save Women's Group. That's a group that opposes transgender athletes. And her victory was greeted with cheers and a smattering of boos as well by fans poolside. As for athletes, uh, certainly uh, some have posted objections anonymously and otherwise. 16 members of the UPenn swim team wrote an anonymous letter recently asking the school not to let Thomas compete in the NCAA tournaments. Others have been more supportive. Erica Sullivan, for instance, she finished third to Leah Thomas and she had an essay in Newsweek. And she was saying, as a woman in sports, I can tell you that I know what the real threats to women's sports are. Sexual abuse and harassment, unequal pay and resources and a lack of women in leadership. Transgender girls and women are nowhere on this list. Uh, So, Ross, it is, as ever, an incredibly emotive topic and it's a complex one as well. Sport is really scrambling here at the moment for a solution. Yeah, it it is. And uh, I'd say Thomas is the is the latest and won't be the last manifestation of this issue. Um, I think in many ways, it was a predictable outcome of the policy that sport has had for the last two decades to try and manage this. But I think certainly, and you alluded to this there, the the tone of the discussion has changed because I think Thomas brings profile as the first athlete to win what is quite a high profile and prestigious title. And a lot more people have now begun to take notice of what's happening. I think before now, and maybe before Lyle Hubbard in the Olympics last year, that was probably the first high-profile case. I think before that, it was happening in minority uh, sports that don't get a lot of media coverage. And I think as more and more people have recognized what's happening, the hostility is growing and it's become progressively more, I'd almost use the word toxic in the in the way that it's debated. So sport has a real problem because I think prior to this uh, spotlight being on it, it was already difficult. And and now you've got polarization and politicization that's going to make it even more difficult for them to unravel. Yes. Well, I think the politicization point is worth mentioning as an aside. I'm just going to mention it and then we'll park it and get back to what sports bodies can do. But it's worth mentioning that just in the last few weeks, the South Dakota governor signed a, quote, fairness in women's sports law. And that law bans transgender women from playing in female sports in schools and in colleges. And South Dakota is the 10th state to enact such a law. So we have Arkansas, Alabama, Texas, Idaho, Mississippi, Montana, West Virginia, Tennessee. Uh, A Republican hue, I think it's fair to say, to those states. So the political angle 
is only going to grow. And it's been the stuff of Fox News and talk shows and American TV over the past week. I don't know how helpful I have to say that intervention is going to be broadly. Yeah, I, I sometimes wake up in the morning here in South Africa and I see some tweets and I see some of the people who've weighed in on this on Fox News and I'm almost mortified by association because I would never associate myself politically with the, the views that those people have. But the problem is that in this instance, I, I believe that they are biologically accurate to be pushing that that po- those policies and those legislations. And so that's the problem here. But But now it's become quite easy to just group everyone as being transphobic if you argue against trans inclusion and to then dismiss them as being part of that red <laughs> red state driven machine even though, i mean i couldn't care less what what happens in us politics but it's made it as is as we say it's just it's it's become so divisive and almost impossible to actually get to the substance of the issue because mm. we can't get beyond the emotion of the issue yes so if we were to boil this down sport at the moment in essence is scrambling for a solution mm. fairness on the one hand for cisgender female athletes and inclusivity for transgender athletes. Yeah. Is there a solution there? Is there a balance there that can be struck at some stage down the line? I'd add to, just before I answer that, I'd add that there's a third imperative for some sports and that's safety. So if you are arguing this from the perspective of rugby, and we did that, and we'll get to maybe to what we decided, but rugby uh, and certainly the combat sports, imagine boxing, martial arts, kickboxing, they, they would have a safety consideration that also has to be factored into that. Now, the, sh- the short answer to that, before we explain why, is that there's no scientific evidence at all to suggest that you can have all three or both if you only want to talk about fairness and safety. So the premise of sport for a long time, going all the way back to 2003, is we, we've identified that the root cause of male-female differences is testosterone, the, the, the typically male hormone. Women have very low levels, men very high levels. And that hormone drives changes like muscle mass, uh, skeleton shape and strength, size of the heart, size of the lungs, hemoglobin. And consequently, much of the performance difference we see, for instance, between Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky, or between uh, Usain Bolt and Elaine Thompson, can be put down to what testosterone does for males from puberty onwards. So sports authorities said, well, we have to try and resolve this problem we have. (laughs) And we're going to do that by lowering testosterone, and it'll take away the advantage. Unfortunately, all the scientific evidence that exists suggests that that doesn't work. And so while Lowering testosterone does certainly lower muscle mass and strength slightly. Those changes are quite small relative to the initial difference between male and female. So where, for example, we see a 30 to 50% strength difference, male, female, about 5 to 10% of that, if that actually, is removed when testosterone is suppressed. And so the only conclusion you can make is that most of the male advantage created by testosterone survives even after testosterone is taken away. And if that male advantage persists, and again, think, think of the skeleton. I mean, you never change the size of the hands, the height, the limbs, the width of the pelvis, things that are quite important for sport. If, if the biology persists, then the performance advantage must persist. And so, so the reality is that sport has to make a call here. It, it cannot, as much as it wanted to, balance inclusion and fairness it has to pick 
Because if we go with inclusion, we are accepting a degree of unfairness. If we go with fairness, we just can't have inclusion. And that's where I think they've gotten stuck. They they don't want to or can't accept the implications of that science. Because mm. it seems, reading some of your posts, even on Twitter and doing some other reading, it seems that for a time, sport was clinging to the hope that mm. lowering testosterone levels was the perfect solution and that would give us inclusion and a level playing field. And now increasingly the science and certainly the science you're advocating is that unfortunately, once puberty has happened, as you said just there, the differential is not going to give us fairness. And so we're, we're now back to the, the key question. What do we want sport to be and why? Exactly. So there's a, we call it this asymmetry. You know, what testosterone creates can't be removed. So it, it, it creates more than is ever taken away. And, and you're right. If you go back to some of the early documents, it's quite clear that those on the IOC were, were, were trying hard to find something in the middle, almost a Solomonic sort of let's cut the baby in half wisdom, uh, which, of course, is not a solution either like this. And they were offered this prospect that if we lower the testosterone, the advantage disappears and everyone can be satisfied. But it just doesn't work that way. So, and, and they haven't adapted to that. And so when I read, for instance, Co at the weekend, this is Sebastian Co from World Athletics talking about the regulations. He, his concern is that the integrity of women's sport is under threat. And I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, it doesn't matter whether there's only one like it and whether some swimmers, <laughs> like you read out earlier, think it's a small problem. I think it's a significant issue. And so the, the integrity of women's sport is under threat. And Leah Thomas is an example of that. Leah Thomas is the product of that idea that lowering testosterone takes away advantage. And Leah Thomas proves that it doesn't work because, again, if you go back and look at the performances of Will Thomas compared to Leah Thomas, they've slowed down by between two and a half and five percent. That's the difference. Now, so yes, testosterone suppression slows you down, but the male-female gap is ten to twelve percent. So naturally and you'd predict this if someone slows down by less than the gap they're going to carry advantage across and their ranking will improve and that's where leah thomas comes from so so the irony is that co is concerned about integrity and wants to do something but then himself is backing exactly the same regulations that have produced the thing he's worried about <laughs> because thomas and his athletes will be under the same regulations yeah i saw his comments for anybody who missed them. So World Athletics, Co is now the president of World Athletics. He has advocated strict rules for testosterone levels. And his quote to the Daily Telegraph over the weekend, for instance, was, uh, there's no question to me that testosterone is the key determinant in performance. If you look at the nature of 12, 13-year-old girls, I remember my daughters would regularly outrun male counterparts in their class. But as soon as puberty kicks in, that gap opens and it remains. Gender cannot trump biology. As Federation president, I don't have that luxury. It's a luxury that other organizations, not at the practical end of having to deal with these issues, have. But as far as I'm concerned, the scientific evidence, the peer-reviewed work we have done, those regulations are the right approach. He's talking about the testosterone regulations. So uh, he's, he's, he's right, but listening to you, he's ignoring the fact that, you know, he, he mentioned those 12, 13-year-old girls and the gap opens. There's no closing that gap, unfortunately, is what the science is a suggestion because even i do remember uh, ross when laurel hubbard the weightlifter from new zealand was going to the olympics all of the talk in advance of those games was about you know, a testosterone level of 10 nanomoles per liter for 12 months and that this would be somehow an, an equalizing 
for. Mm. So is it quite recently that the the argument that really it's not about current testosterone levels, it's about the fact that puberty has happened, is, is, it, is it quite recently that this argument is is coming to the fore across the board? Yes, and I think what's happened is that there have been more cases that have triggered discussion. And as I mentioned at the outset there, if you go back five, ten years, there were very few athletes in the space. Um, and and that's, a, that's a function of two things. One is that the number of transgender candidates, if I can call them that, was very low. And the prevalence of transgender um, cases has certainly gone up in the last five to six years. And then allied to that, the sports policy if you go back all the way to the beginning, required surgery and removal of the internal, well, the, of the testes, a gonadinectomy effectively. That, that changed recently enough that we're now looking at the first generation of adult athletes who wouldn't have needed that. So the, the testosterone-lowering concept is one generation old, and I would argue that that's facilitated the, the, the current number of athletes who are making themselves is in effect available into women's sports. And so as more cases have happened and Hubbard was one, uh, Thomas is the latest, there've been a handful in the US who, who triggered those policies that you alluded to earlier. There've been Brazilian volleyball player, New Zealand mountain bike athletes as well. I think the, the fact that they're now being spoken about has led to more scrutiny on the policy. And that's where it's become quite apparent that the testosterone concentration is slightly misleading. It's, there's more to it than that. And it's really the, the point now is, have you undergone the process of testosterone-influenced puberty? And if that's a yes, then you have advantages that are unavailable to women. And so sport basically now has to say, well, from very first principles, why does women's sport exist? What, what, is, it, what is it meant to achieve to have a category for women? And you know, the biologist in me answers that and says, well, women's sport exists to exclude male advantage. And so if you now want to make exceptions to that and allow some people with male advantage, I think someone has to explain very clearly why that should be allowed. And in my opinion, that hasn't happened yet. I was trying to get a clear idea of where, for instance, the Olympic movement stands on this situation, because they had guidelines in 2015 and they recently updated them in 2021. In so much as I can see, they are saying that transgender women should no longer be required to reduce their testosterone levels to compete in the women's sport category. And mm. it concluded as well, there should be no presumption that trans women have an automatic advantage over natal women, which seems to go against their policy, uh, which was published in, in 2015. What also jumps out, though, is that the IOC effectively are just passing the book. They're saying... Here are rules, but actually it's up to all the individual sports to decide their rules and best of luck with that. We're <laughs> going to go and have a coffee and, and take a break from this because it's too complicated for us to figure out. That was my reading of what they're doing. No, I think that's accurate. And, you know, the, the, before I start into criticizing them, the, the, one, the one thing I'd offer uh, to redeem them a little bit in that respect is that there's, there's arguably a case to be made that each sport should manage its own situation because as i mentioned rugby would have quite a different assessment of this compared to say archery or shooting as a sport that have come up uh, swimming would be quite different potentially from uh, boxing and mixed martial arts in the same way so again if we have three imperatives we have inclusion fairness and safety how they weight them depends on your sport and also 
what's the gap between men and women in those sports? And weightlifting, for instance, it's 30%, even at the same weight. You know, the best, the best Olympic male weightlifters lift 30% more than a woman who weighs the same as them. So that's a massive difference, male, female. Whereas when you go down to some sports, shooting, for instance, you could probably make the case needn't even have categories because they perform so similarly in those. Mm. So, so yeah, there's some rationale to, towards saying you can do it yourself. But what they have left is a vacuum of leadership. They haven't even gone far enough to describe to sports how they should do that. You know, UK Sport commissioned a similar report, and that was very comprehensive and outlined to sports what they should consider, how they should consider it, and what they might do with that. The IOC really just has said, we'll see you in the bar <laughs> afterwards. And you know, it was astonishing because at the time of the Olympics, when the Hubbard conversation was going on and it was controversial, the IOC's medical director acknowledged that the current policy was not fit for purpose. And so everyone thought that the IOC was going to respond after the Olympic Games last year and come out with something a little bit more stringent that recognized this retained advantage. And then they actually went the other way. It was it was quite remarkable. That bit that you alluded to where they're now saying there should be no presumption of advantage for trans women is completely anti-science. <laughs> so they're effectively saying that the biological male should not be assumed to have an advantage. Th that, if you were to apply that elsewhere, you you're effectively opening the door to say, why have a category at all? Mm -hmm. If you, if you don't presume an advantage to begin with, what's the point of having two separate categories for men and women? It's, it was, it was an astonishing uh, decision, and I suspect will accelerate the emergence of trans athletes in the next decade. Mm. Ross, I suspect uh, for the scientist in you, this is a very clear-cut issue. What about the human being who's trying to uh, take a broader look at sport and the world that we live in? Yeah, it is. It is clear-cut physiologically. I've often said it's it's not even complex scientifically. It's pretty straightforward. But what you do with it is complicated, and I'm I'm, I'm fully aware of that. And I would also love for there to be a solution that satisfies everyone, at least to the extent that we could get rid of the physiological basis for having to keep men and women, male and female separate. Um, there, are, there are, of course, social arguments to be made that, that women need sport separate from men for, for reasons other than biology. But for sure, I would love to find that. My, my own personal journey, for want of a better word on this, was was to also think, well, okay, if you can remove the advantage, what's the problem? But as I've looked at the science more and seen that retained advantage, I think it's important to also recognize that you're, you're talking here fundamentally about a colliding rights issue. It's, it's not an issue that affects only one party. We always talk about it as what happens with the trans athletes if you exclude them. You could equally make the case and say, well, what about the woman who would be excluded if there was inclusion? Because one of the great things about sport is that it's zero sum. You know, there's only three spots on the podium. Only one of them gets gold. Only eight lanes in an Olympic final in swimming or, or running. Only 11 spots in the starting lineup of a soccer match. So, so the, the problem is that the moment we talk about this and we neglect to remember that there are women involved here and it's their sports space, I don't think we can do justice to it because we have to appreciate that You've got one group who say we have a right to identify as we wish to, and absolutely they do. And you've got another group saying we have a right to sport that is fair for us and excludes male advantage. And those two groups are in opposition. So it's a colliding rights issue, not a single group issue. And, and so I know that it, 
and I've been accused, for instance, of being lacking compassion. It's just, it's not that. It's just that my compassion here is for the women who are affected by it and who have every right to want a closed sports space. Hmm. I was reading a bit more about Leah Thomas's performance because it's been talked about as utterly dominant and she's been presented as like a force of nature. And it is worth just stating that at this meet, she did just win one race and she was fifth in her second race and eighth in the other. So mm. this was not total domination. For instance, there was a Kate Douglas there who walked off with eight national titles, broke three American records in three different strokes. If she had been transgender, then one can only imagine the things that would be uh, being said. And so that brings me to a point where I don't know if you think this is true. I wonder, is sport at the moment utterly scrambling, as we've said, for a solution and almost hoping that transgender athletes become involved, don't dominate and if you take the very best male and the very best female, we know what we'll get. But the hope is that they almost get lucky that the transgender athletes fit in at a certain level, don't dominate, and therefore everybody's reasonably happy. That's parking the safety issue in certain sports. Mm, well, G gender dysphoria is a terribly difficult condition. I mean, you hear some idiots, uh, frankly, almost arguing that people are going through transitioning to take part and be successful in sport. I think we can rule that out. So it strikes me sport is hoping that those who do arrive into women's sports don't dominate and therefore everyone's happy-ish. And that's not a great solution because someone will come along and dominate inevitably at some point. Yeah, I think that that's accurate. And just two, two anecdotes. One is, you know, we've reached the point in the debate now where it's become toxic enough that people are questioning motives and you've raised one of them there is like you're only wanting you're only a woman now that you can win at sport the other one that's actually even more distasteful is 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 accusing someone of only wanting to do women's sport to make your way into the change rooms with your teammates afterwards and, and get into women's bathrooms now <laughs> There, there might well be, you know, out of a thousand people, there might well be people who do it for that reason. But it just seems to me such a waste of energy and so 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 negative for the overall tone of the debate to go towards guessing people's motives. It sits really uncomfortably with me, that part. So I agree with you there. The other anecdote is that when when World Rugby issued its guideline, and, and we were the first, I guess, Olympic sport to say that trans women can't play women's rugby in our events, we had to allow all the unions to either accept or not those guidelines because every country in the world has different legislations and, and policies. And one of the unions came back and said, we, we agree with your assessment and the process you've done. We commend that. And we think that your arguments are correct, but we've only got one trans woman currently playing. And if we follow your guideline, we're going to face such a negative backlash that it's not worth that small risk. So in effect, they've weighed up one risk against another and decided that it's worth taking. Now, there are people who would say that that's wrong. I, I guess I understand why that happens. But the, the point is, in agreement with what you said, is sports are reluctant to take on the negative of exclusion when they don't see a need for it. Now, I think that's a little bit disingenuous. I think you you have to write policy for the future yeah. based on the present. It's It's a little bit like... You know, you don't go to the barn and say, well, no horses have run out. Let's leave the door open. <laughs> you kind of lock it on the risk that they'll run out before. So, so I'm not 
entirely sure I, I agree with sports approach, but I do see why it happens that way. Yes, and it's, it's, it's a very human thing. There's a degree of, well, let's just see what happens. And mm. it's understandable because there are no, there's no easy solution here. Yeah. The downside of that is that some phenomenon will come along and will completely dominate the games and will be the center point of the most vitriolic, toxic debate you can imagine. And that's yes. not fair to put someone through either. And that's the point coming back to, to, to Leah Thomas is that I, I, I cringe or flinch at least maybe as a softer word when I read things about dominating and unbeatable because the reality is that when swimming as a man as Will Thomas, Will Thomas was not top ranked swimmer in the USA. I think in the one event was outside the top 400 and the others I think was 60th and 30th. So that's a good swimmer, but not a great swimmer. Yeah. If, if a great swimmer, someone in the, in the vein of a Caleb Dressel now or Michael Phelps in the past, someone at that level, if, if that level of performance transitions yes. and loses only two and a half percent, they'd win by 7%, which that would be a half a pool length in the Olympic games. Now we're talking unbeatable and dominant. So you can always you can always do this from worst case and it's the same thing for rugby is it's one thing to talk about let's say an average male transitioning it's another thing to talk about it if it was uh, if it was billy vunapola or james ryan yeah. <laughs> level of strength and power so so yeah there, there's a sort of doom and gloom scenario worst case scenario and then there's the the, the current scenario and I, people are being cagey about it i i would like to see the possibility of a solution that allows inclusion provided it doesn't detract from the, what I call the pathway. And, and, and you know, as a, a sports journal, um, sport is built on meritocracy. If you're good enough at a young age, you graduate to the level above and then you move above and eventually you find yourself at club level. Then you make it into your provincial sides and eventually you're playing rugby for Ireland, for example, or you move through school system and eventually you're in a, in a rowing, uh, pairs team in the next Olympic games. As long as trans inclusion doesn't compromise that pathway, there should be really no issue with inclusion in my opinion. So that might mean allowing participation, but not selection, not scholarship, not medals, not records, not prizes. If that, that, I don't know whether that's a compromise. Maybe some would reject that as, as othering and uh, diminishing the achievements because it's not full inclusion, but I just, I can't bring myself to be inclusive at the expense of women whose space it is, but but would like there to be in opportunities to participate without being forced back into men's sport. Yeah. Well, I think we'd all love a solution here that's both fair and inclusive. And that's the difficulty. Uh, give us a final few thoughts then on safety. I, I, were you part of that World Rugby decision back in 2020 to, uh, see, I, even the terminology, I was about to say ban. Uh, what's what's the what's the better term for not allowed transgender players? It's not a, it's not a ban as such, though we're we're splitting hairs in a sense. Yeah, I think it's an important hair to split, and I, I'd be okay with calling it ban as long as it finishes from women's rugby, <laughs> because it's framed oftentimes as a ban from sport. And you want to say, hang on, it's not it's not a ban from sport. What it is is, in my opinion, scientifically, the appropriate regulation of the women's category. That that's what it was. But of course, it's the exclusion. Yes. We, we did that at the time because uh, we were aware of the research that was coming out. There were a number of very well done studies that were now showing more conclusively than ever that strength persisted, that size and mass and muscle mass and muscle area did not drop. And, you know, it was a, 
at the time of the Casta Semenya case, it was a topical issue. And I remember discussing it with the rest of the medical team saying, you know, actually, we're not sure our policy is fit for purpose. We need to go back to the drawing board. So with a clean slate, we had a two-day workshop where we invited people to come and present views on both sides and ultimately decided that given, I mean, the, you know, in rugby, the definition of an injury is, is the result of excessive kinetic energy transfer <laughs> to get scientific. And that's a function of mass and speed and force, effectively. And when you consider that male rugby players are 30% heavier, 10 to 15% faster, and have strength and power that's 30 to 50% higher, the end result is, is that you create a risk that you can't, I believe, ask women to accept. Um, everyone accepts that there's some risk of playing rugby. They know that they might get injured and concussion is a big deal, of course, now, as you know. But um, in consultation with lawyers and insurance companies and experts on injury, we just got to the point where we were say, actually, you know, if you, if you take the right situation, which, which actually is the wrong situation, someone who's particularly heavy, strong, fast, powerful, this could be quite dangerous for women. Um, we would never let women play with men. And if testosterone removes so few of the male advantages, then what are we inviting on women players? And it was not tenable for us to do. So that's where we got to that position. What was the reaction? Uh, divided, as you can imagine. There were many people who said, finally, a sport that followed the science and the evidence and did the right thing. So we got the, the women's rights groups, the advocates for women's sport, uh, very much on side. But then at the same time, the, the, the organizations that were there campaigning and advocating for trans inclusion and those around the world were very hostile and angry about it. Um, and then, as I mentioned, different unions were able to either adopt it and some, some said they wouldn't for reasons like I mentioned. Yeah. Others said that the evidence wasn't strong enough yet to exclude, um, and others said that they can't exclude. I mean, I, I say it here, South Africa has got one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, and it protects both sex and gender. So, so if there were ever a case in this country, um, it would be a real dilemma legally. You know, in England, for instance, there's a Gender Recognition Act, which explicitly states that when biological sex is relevant and important, you can make exceptions and effectively discriminate on the basis of sex, like for sport. And so that was the legal vehicle that allowed World Rugby to adopt the policy. But in South Africa, they, they protect both. And so if it ever went to a court case, someone would have to try and untangle the sex gender uh, conundrum effectively and figure out whether it's worth protecting sex or not, whether you can, you can do it purely on the basis of gender. So I'm sure there'll be cases in the future. Yes. So a last point, and this is the impossible question, not so much what do you think should happen, because I think you've outlaid your views very reasonably there. Where do you think sport will be in a decade, which is blink of an eye territory, I suppose? Yes, it's, uh, I sometimes get the feeling that it's, it's not yet at a crossroads, but it's getting there. And cases like Leah Thomas certainly bring it much closer. It accelerates the journey to that crossroads. Because as I said, five years ago, these conversations were not being had. Um, now they're being had regularly. I mean, this is the, as, as you said, Thomas, how about before? There have been a handful in the US. I think if there are three or four more, and if they are at or better than the level of Will Thomas pre-transition, in other words, if we see more athletes who were very, very good, you know, in the top 
three to five percent of male sport. If if they make that transition, they'll carry advantage across that does lead to absolute dominance. And then I think sport will have to confront this in a very real way. So it depends on the volume and the quality, in effect, of the athletes who we next deal with. Mm. I suspect, in the same way that Hubbard was predictable and Thomas was predictable, I suspect that there will be in the next three or four years many more cases. But by the Paris Olympics, it wouldn't surprise me if there are five or six trans women. You know, we had two in uh, in Tokyo. There'll be five or six, if not up to 10. And by the 2028 Games, if nothing changes, I think we could see a dozen or more. So I think it's going to accelerate. And the only thing then, and you alluded to this earlier, is if, if they – if they're at a low enough level that they're never winning, then even if they improve from 500th to 50th, I think most people will say, no problem. Yeah. But if they're going from 200th to 1st, then sport will have to decide. And then that that fairness inclusion dilemma, you can't balance it, you have to pick, will come into, the, uh, into play. Dr. Ross Tucker, such a pleasure having you on talking about all this. Thank you very much. Anytime. Thank you.